0: We're going to focus on the lost coin. And this is a parable, one of three, which we'll talk about, that, God, or that Jesus uses to show God's love. Now, God's love is a tricky thing because a lot of times what a pastor's job or responsibility is is to take these big truths found in Scripture and to simplify them, to teach them in a way that a child could understand. But God's love and I, is, is a little tricky because it's something we hear constantly. And so it's almost like what the pastor's job when teaching about God's love is, is to take something that might seem simple, that you might feel as you have a good grasp on, and show, how dynamic it actually is. And in this passage, I believe Jesus is teaching the Pharisee how magnificent God's love is. And so uh, it's in Luke 15, verses uh, 8 through 10. I'm going to read it, and and then we'll jump right in. So starting in verse eight, you know what? Let me read this actually. If you're in chapter 15 of Luke, um, look at verse one and two first. I'm going to read that and then read the parable of the lost coin because we're going to talk about that as well. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, meaning Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then starting in verse 8, this is one of the three parables that he shares in response to that. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So let me ask you a question. Um, and I'm going to assume, you know, originally I wrote the question, I'm like, you know, what question I want to ask them? Have you ever lost anything? Probably yes, right? Unless you're the most responsible person in the whole world, you've probably lost something at some point. So let me ask you this. Have you ever lost something that was precious to you, that was valuable to you, and been uncertain if you would ever recover it? Yeah? If something's coming to mind, do you remember what that was like? Can you recall that to memory? The feelings you experienced? I had, this, this past year, I had one of the most scary, anxious, and humiliating moments of my life. And I've embarrassed myself a lot. I have. Me and my family were at, um, in Florida at the shore visiting another family. Um, and, and, they, and there was another family from down there. We were all together, and so it was a large group of us, and there was about 10 kids there, and we had just finished up on the beach. We were slightly burnt out, if you know what that's like, just sitting on the beach under the hot sun all day, and we walked up to a seawalk, and we all sat down and gathered around. And when we were sitting down, my wife, Emma, she walked across the street to go get something out of the one store. And so I was there, all you know, kids everywhere playing. There's little playground stuff. And I sat down for a minute, and a couple moments later, I noticed Carter was missing, my two-year-old at that time. And I panicked. I panicked. And I started looking around for him. And listen, it's it's not the first time I've lost sight of my son, okay? But it, it was the first time I've lost sight of him for that long. And I got up in terror and fear and looked around for him and started moving, wondering what happened to him. And there was a street right next to us. And all of a sudden, I saw him and a stranger had him, was bringing him back to me because he had walked off and followed Emma. And someone saw him about to cross the street and grabbed him. Thus, you can understand the humiliation Now, you would have thought I would have been completely relieved as soon as I set my eyes on him. Nope. I wasn't comforted until I had him in my arms again. I had to hold him. And even then, that moment of losing him and finding him, there was a new appreciation for having him close to me because of what could have potentially happened. Now, guys, why do I share that story with you? Jesus, in response to the Pharisees grumbling, when Jesus has an opportunity to teach the Pharisees about God's love, he uses three parables that involve people losing something that is valuable to them. The first one is a sheep, one out of 99. The second one is coins, one out of 10. And the last one is a son, one out of two. Jesus wants it to be clear that the love that the Father has for his people that are lost is as intense and as real and even more so than I had for my son in that moment that he was lost. That's how dramatic God's love for us is. And you know what makes this even more powerful? If we want to talk about the context this is set in, Luke just shared verses that Jesus, of Jesus teaching, saying, unless you hate your mother and brother, your sister and father, Unless you hate your own family, in comparison to me, you are not worthy to be called my disciple. That's a high call, right? I would say so. And then he says, if you're not willing to give up anything for me and my sake, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. So he shares that. And then what's the next thing that happens? the tax collectors and sinners, the very people you would not think were able to fulfill that type of call and be Jesus' disciple are the very ones that are following him. And the the Pharisees, who if you don't know, they're the ones that strictly adhered to the law of God and felt like they would be the only ones to be accepted, don't know what to do with it. They grumble saying these people are tax collectors and sinners. They're outside of God's fellowship. How is it that he eats with them and receives them? And there's only one answer. And that answer has confounded people for years. It is the very thing that sets Christianity apart from all other faiths, it is the grace of God. It is God's grace expressed in his love to the lost. And I'm convinced of this, that if we're going to raise families, if we're going to follow Jesus in this restless, tumultuous world, if we're going to follow Jesus through the ups and downs, if we're going to be able to cling to him, when life gets hard and things change, and if we're going to raise kids that do the same, we have to give them a whole picture of who Jesus is. We have to give them something they're not going to find in the world. And it's only found in the New Testament Scriptures. And you know what that is? It's God's gloriousness, how big he is, And it's his grace, how kind he is. It's his toughness and his tenderness. It's his majesty and it's his mercy. It's his transcendence, which means he's over and above everything. And it's his imminence, which means he's close and right here with us. If anybody in here has suffered or gone through hard times, you need a God that is big and in control and a God that is close and can comfort your heart. So I'm going to draw three things out of this parable in the remainder of our time. Um, But one thing I want to say first is this. This parable I've seen acted out in my house on a regular basis. All right? Because what we have is a woman who had 10 coins, lost one. She wants it back, so she diligently searches for it, won't be at rest till she finds it, and then celebrates once she discovers it. So any kids in here or any people with kids in here have probably seen this played out in their house, and I've seen it most clearly in my son James. My son James has an aunt, uh, Aunt Christine, we call her Aunt Sis. It's his great aunt, it's Emma's aunt. And she is the best gift giver for our kids. And she doesn't get, like my brothers, they get, you know, big uh, Nerf guns or big balls, things like that. She doesn't get stuff like that. She gets the odd stuff that you would never expect her to get. And she gets my son, James. He loves these things and adores them more than anything else that he could possibly get. Some examples are for his birthday in June, he gets a snow globe. You probably wouldn't expect that for a birthday in June. He gets a snow globe. He won't let go of it. Um, He's gotten a Chia Pet. Uh, That was a good one. Uh, Binoculars when he was, I think, probably four. So he just gets the best gifts. But what happens is this. Parents know this. When that gift, when he doesn't know where that gift is, panic ensues. Panic happens. And he expects me to help him diligently search for it until that is found, right? And he doesn't care where we have to be, what I'm in the middle of doing. All he knows is he will not be at rest until it's back in his hands. And when he gets it, he will celebrate. So I've seen this parable work out. And I'm gonna use James as an illustration throughout these points, But the one thing we need to have clear, and this is where God's love comes in, and I want to make it real and deep for us. Because what we're talking about is God's love to the lost. And it could be really easy for us to sit in here and to think about the lost people in our life. And there's not anything necessarily wrong with that. But what we need to see is that If we're here and we're a Christian this morning, you were lost at one point in time. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're lost now. So God's love applies to every single one of us. And it's different than James's toy or the woman's coin. The parable only shows you a facet of the truth. You know why it's different? That coin is probably not lost for any fault of its own. And James's toy's, are not lost for any fault of their own. Why are they lost? Because James lost it. (laughs) Because James didn't take care of it, right? How many have seen Toy Story 4 yet? I don't see as many kids in here as the first service. Okay, all right. So some people have seen it. This is not a spoiler alert. It's not going to ruin the movie for you, so don't panic. But um, if you watch that movie and if you've seen that movie, we are much more like Forky than we are like The Lost Coin. Some people are laughing because they've seen it. Now, Forky is one of Bonnie, who's a kid in the movie's Toys. And Forky, I don't want to get into all the details, but Forky believes he's trash. And so every time Bonnie stops playing with him, he, he hightails it for the trash. And he even talks about how much he loves it, how comfortable he is in it, and all this stuff. What That is a better picture of who we are. God being Bonnie and us being Forky that we're not lost because of the fault of God. We're lost because of our own fault. We're lost because we choose to be our own masters. We choose to live for ourselves and determine our own destiny, thinking that we're experiencing freedom. But the reality is, that freedom is an illusion. And if we are not connected to God by faith, that illusion is going to wear away. And that freedom that we thought we had will seem, um, we'll realize that we're actually in bondage to our own sin with no right to tell God to take us back. And that's why as we talk about God's love to sinners, it's a gracious love. And what I mean by that is it's not something we deserve. And that is at the core in the foundation of Christianity, if you don't have joy in the Lord, the first place to start is, to, is right there, the bedrock, that God receives us by grace, not because we deserve it, because we, have, we are lost, because we have turned away. He has brought us back. So the first thing we see here in this passage is Christ's claim on the lost? The woman says this. The first thing that the passage says is, having had 10 silver coins, or yeah, having had 10 silver coins, she lost one. When James comes to me looking for one of those toys, what's the first thing he says to me? I lost my binoculars. They were his. It is so important to see as you reflect on God's love to people that don't deserve it, that God claims you as his own far before you've done anything to be lost. God claims you as his own. If you're here and you're a Christian, that's because God sought you out far before you ever sought him. It's because God pursued you before you ever turned to him. It's because he had a personal particular love that he placed on you, that he knew all the good stuff and all the bad stuff about you. And he set his love on you, not because of anything you had done or anything you will do, not because of any gifts you have, not because of any way that he chooses to use you in the future, but simply because he loves you. Guys, that should floor us. Do you know the freedom that that should bring? How often is human love so conditioned on performance? How often do we love those that please us and be kind to those who do what we want? God's love is not like that. It says in Ephesians 1.4 that He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We don't have to be anxious about him leaving us. We don't have to be anxious about him forsaking us. He's loved you so much that before he formed the world, he had you on his heart. And not you in general, but you particularly. Think about that when you go to pray to him, when you encourage your children to pray to him, to know him, that he's known you before you were even born. And He knew He would draw you into His fold and He would restore fellowship with you. It's amazing truth. And it's that claim. It's my first point. God's love to the lost is shown on His claim on sinners. And the next point is that God's love to the lost is shown in His pursuit. Guys, it's His claim. It's He values you because you're His. He values you because you're His. And it's that very thing that leads Him to pursue you. It leads Him to come after you and to not be content until He's found you. You you truly know the value of something to your heart when it's gone. How sad... And true is that in this fallen world, right? When I was was at the beach with Carter that day, I was probably annoyed at him because I was tired and I wanted him to take a nap and he doesn't nap on the beach. But give me two seconds without him. Give me two seconds without him. And I want him in my arms. And there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. God's love. He's shown in his pursuit. And in the same way, you see in the passage here, this woman lights a lamp, okay? Doesn't find the coin. She sweeps the house, moving stuff out of the way. She is on a deal, and she seeks diligently. And then does she stop when she doesn't find it? Absolutely not. She does not stop until it's found. It sounds like James. And he's got me turning the house upside down, checking cars, checking the backyard, until he's not going to be at ease. And if I try to take him somewhere until it's found, guess what, we're hearing about it in the car as he fusses and cries. Sorry, James, I'm putting you on blast here. Um, The point is this. What is God trying to show us? about his love, that it doesn't stop. We don't sin ourselves out of God's love. Is that hard to hear? We don't sin ourselves out of God's love. And you might say, well, Max, the Bible teaches about the wrath of God. This isn't even in my notes, but this is an important point. Do you know that the wrath of God is an expression of God's love? God's love is focused and when his creation is not fulfilling the point it was made for, because he loves us, anger rises. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. If God didn't care, it would mean he doesn't love us. His anger means he does and he seeks us out. J.I. Packer, has a quote that I want to share with you. I just couldn't explain this myself. That shows us how God's love never fails, and God's love will not be, God will not be totally satisfied until he has everyone that was lost. We got that? It says this. Think about this. Before the world began, God's happiness is not dependent on us. God was happy without humans before they were made. He would have continued happy had had he simply destroyed them after they had sinned. But as it is, he has set his love upon particular sinners. And this means that by his own free voluntary choice, he will not know perfect and unmixed happiness again till he has brought every one of them to heaven. Isn't that amazing? God will not know complete happiness. The God of the universe until he has every one of his lost children, until every, his love won't stop. It's a force, and it won't stop till it has every one of them. Think of Bonnie, for the kids that know the Toy Story 4. She was fine before she got Forky. But once she got Forky, if Forky was lost, she would, was not happy until she got her favorite toy bag. Guys, think about that. Reflect on that. So what does he do to pursue us? I'm going to move things along here. What does he do to pursue us? The very one teaching this parable is what he did to pursue us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus, we had no right or no claim on God, but he loved us so much that he sent his son into the world. His son, who was perfectly united with him for all eternity, left and came after us. He lived a life that we couldn't live. And when he died, he died as a substitution for us, for all the ways that we turned away from him. He went, he, God doesn't call us to come up to heaven. He doesn't say, this is what you have to do, obey this and come to me. He sends Jesus that fulfills every single obligation we ever had towards God. And he says, you can have the perfect life that Christ had. The guaranteed eternity with him in heaven under one condition. There's a condition. Repent and believe. And if you repent and believe, it's the sign that you are always his. So don't go bothering about if you're his or if you're not his. The Bible never gives you that type of argument It says, repent and believe and rejoice because he's known you before the world has begun. All right, final point. So first is we see God's love in in his claim on lost sinners. We see God's love in his pursuit of lost sinners. And we see God's love in his celebration when one lost sinner repents. Now, This is where the challenge comes in for the Pharisees. What were the Pharisees doing? Anybody want to answer? Grumbling. Lost sinners, people that were outside the fellowship of God, were grumbling when they saw people coming in. They probably felt like, hey, shouldn't they have to do more? it's almost like the parable where everybody gets paid the same no matter what time they start, right? You guys know that parable? Uh, you know, if that happened to one of us at our work, we probably feel like it was a little unfair, right? Where's the justice in that? He worked two hours and he gets paid for a whole day and I worked the whole day and I get paid for a whole day. How come he gets the same as me? The Pharisees are thinking we strictly adhere to the law. We closely obeyed your commandments. We disciplined ourselves. How are you accepting all these people who have lived totally for themselves and not for you, and not for you? And guys, it's easy to beat up the Pharisees, but you've got to understand, they are, have they are, they, learned from the Old Testament law and what sacrifices are needed for someone to be justified in God's sight. And that if someone sins and unclean, they're outside the fellowship of God. But we know that all the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Christ. The Pharisees were doing what is the the, the stumbling block for all that don't know God. The stumbling block, which has now become the cornerstone of our faith. And it's Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law and prophets point towards a Messiah to come, a suffering servant, and a Messiah to come, who would be the sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist saw. And they were centering their religion on themselves. They were centering on themselves. Don't you see? Is your Christianity about you and what you get out of it? Or is it about God? If it is about you and what you get out of it, then your, then your faith is centered on yourself. When you don't understand things or things seem unfair, you're automatically going to revolt. But if it's centered on God, when you see him doing a miraculous work, like saving sinners, you will rejoice. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, this is powerful, religious affections... He's talking about the true sign that anybody really knows God isn't outward acts. It's a love to God. And he said that love should come first from knowing God and who he is, even if it has nothing to do with you. That if you really know God, his beauty, his love, His transcendence will take hold of your imagination and capture your heart. And then as you think of what he's done for you particularly, it will shoot your affections through the roof. In heaven, they were able to celebrate because on earth, Jesus Christ suffered. There was sorrow. And every one of those sins was paid for. Every one of your sins, if you are a believer, was paid for. When God became a propitiation, big word for kids, what that means is God's wrath was poured out on sin. God took his son and Jesus was put in front of the wrath. So, we, so he received the punishment for every one of our past, present, and future sins so that now all that we would receive from God is His favor and His love. God's wrath was averted to Christ so that we could receive His love, His kindness, His closeness, and His favor. And when Christ experienced that, He experienced sorrow, agony, and pain so that in heaven, When one of us repents and turns back, we can experience joy and celebration. I'll close with this verse from Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3.17. This is just a beautiful picture of God's posture towards us. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, He will quiet you by his love and he will exalt over you with loud singing. That is God's heart to you.